Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. It's WBZ 1208. It's history time. You know we love the history. It's a big part of the brand here. And tonight, something light, light history. War. Causes of, past, and future, actually. That's the, the big picture. We're going to start out with World War II because it is... 50th, 50th anniversary, right this month? So 80th. 80th a, a, excuse me, 80, 80th anniversary. 1939. So, oh, yeah, 50th was Manson and uh, Woodstock. There right? you go. Yeah. Steven, Slightly different. Stephen Van Ever returns to talk about this. This is what you do. You teach over at MIT. Give me the list of the stuff you teach and have taught. I think it's fascinating. Well, I, I teach, by, of course, in the causes of prevention of war. I teach a class on U.S. foreign policy where we cover the whole last 100 years and the future. And we evaluate policy. What's the smart and stupid thing? Are we going the right way or the wrong way? I used to teach uh, on the Arab-Israeli conflict from soup to nuts. I've taught classes on U.S. national security policy, which includes all aspects of it, conventional war, nuclear war, war uh, uses of intervention, U.S. military force abroad and intervening. So I teach sort of the, the, the hard side of international politics. Who takes your courses? I always uh, think of MIT as engineering, metal, metallurgy, and things like that. You know, widgets, molecules, all that. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not true. Actually, uh, well, I mean, I don't have big classes like you would at Harvard, right? You know, I might have 100 grads, undergrads a year, and, it, you know, if I taught those classes at Harvard, I'd have 400. So we are, you know, focused on science and engineering. But the undergrads are, are an honor to teach. They're fantastic. Uh, and uh, they're, you know, brilliant, and it was great fun to teach them. All right. Let's dig in. World War II, what was, what was the event, the actual event? And then we'll get into the forces at play, the tensions at play, lead up to the event. We've done this before, but uh, here, but it would be good to get your take. And then, and part of that is, some say, the Treaty of Versailles and how it was onerously mean and unreasonable, and you, you disagree, but... We will talk about what they say. And then the, there are a lot of things to get into, like uh, the uh, firing of John Bolton. And I'm curious about about what you think about Netanyahu's entry into U.S. politics 
you know, we used to have bipartisan support, but now he's picked a side. And I'm curious to know how you feel about that. Maybe if we have time on the other end of this, we can do that. But World War II, you describe what started this thing. Well, okay, the very start was the so-called Gleiwitz incident, which was fake news. Um, the Germans claimed they'd been attacked on uh, August 31st, 1939, so they attacked Poland on the 1st at dawn. And they did so claiming that the Polish army had crossed their border and killed a whole lot of their people. This is how countries usually start wars. That's what I was going to, was going to ask. It's a pretty standard procedure. Yeah, you, you, you pretend the other guy did it, and then you tell your people that you've been attacked, and, and you make the big lie. And I can only think of the Gulf of Tonkin, but... Uh, Same thing. There, what are some other examples of this? Oh, the U.S. started the war against the Philippines in 1899 with the so-called Manila Incident. Uh, where the uh, U.S. forces there attacked the Filipinos and claimed that they had attacked. Uh, or um, uh, World War I, uh, the uh, Austrians claimed they'd been attacked by the Serbs when they really hadn't been. And they, con they convinced the old Austrian king, uh, Franz Ferdinand, to uh, support the war on this, with this lie that the Serbs had attacked first. Uh, there was the um, Nueces River incident that uh, the U.S. used to justify the Mexican War. And so it, it's standard. Someone should write a little book on like how countries start wars because they always started with fake news. Next time your government says, hey, we've been attacked. Got to go to war. Well, check the footnotes. What about, and this, was, this came up a couple times yesterday and we talked about 9-11. Some say 9-11 is precisely that. Is any chance that's the case? Uh, in a word, no. Okay. Uh, that one was real. Okay. How about what's go what goes on in, with uh, the shipping in the Strait of Hormuz, reported attacks on various ships? Is, could some of that be going on there? You know, I don't think it is at the moment. I mean, I would keep my eye very carefully on reports you have that are then used to escalate uh, or used to argue for escalation. There is something very real going on, which is that the U.S. has put very tough sanctions on Iran that are really crippling their economy. Uh, and the Iranians feel that they got to show the U.S. that there's some costs that the U.S. will pay if it keeps these sanctions on, and what uh, what tools have they got to impose costs? Well, they can uh, either injure or shut off the shipping of oil to the world, which will raise the price of oil and hurt everybody. And they've been they've been attacking tankers going through the Straits of Hormuz as a sort of signal, like, "Hey, guys, we can punch back too," and they better be very careful about that because this can get out of control. And they've attacked they've attacked a couple of uh, ground facilities and then back. About six weeks ago, they attacked a couple of tankers. And they didn't sink them, but they set them on fire, made a little bit of a mess. And uh, what's going on here is the U.S. is basically squeezing the Iranians with the, uh, with the sanctions, and the Iranians are squeezing a little bit back, saying, wait, you know, two, two can play this game. Are the Iranians betting that the U.S. won't go all out, go yes. all in? Yeah, they are. They're trying to keep it ex just a little bit below the threshold. You know, you kind of salami the thing, you know, go, take some slices of salami, but don't eat the whole thing. What do they, what are they thinking that will prevent us from going all in? The, the financial cost of upsetting world stability? Well, for us to really use force in a big way would be a very fateful thing. This Iran's a real country. They're not like Iraq. With They're, a real military. Yeah, they have a real military, and they have a lot of ways to hit us back. If we really got into a major war with them, we would suffer too. Uh, they can hit us... Um, a bunch of ways. They can hit our troops in Iraq. We have forces in Iraq today. We still have, you know, 2,000 guys there. And they have a lot of uh, Shiite friends there that could kill quite a few Americans. And they could unleash uh, Hezbollah on Israel. 
they could uh, uh, cause a lot of trouble for the tanker traffic through the straits, and that would cause a worldwide economic effect. And they have some worldwide capacity to to to, um, to, to mount terror attacks. They've they've in the past 20, 30 years ago they mounted terror attacks against the Jewish community in Argentina. So I know I'm getting off the original subject, but I don't care. Um, Go for it. Related to Iran, we stick with the Saudis, and the Saudis, the enemy of Iran. Why? Why is that? Why? It seems like the people of Iran, inside each Iranian, is a Western person trying to get out much more than the Saudis. Why do we side with the Saudis? I mean, the, the Iranians have oil too, right? What? What's the deal? The whole uh, uh, decision that the Trump folks have made to treat Iran as a bigger threat than Iran, than Saudi Arabia is a big head scratcher. Uh, the Saudis are a threat to the United States. They are a key sponsor of a radical jihadi Sunni politics and thought in the Middle East. They are a key, shall we say, source of the fuel that drives um, both al-Qaeda and ISIS. And al-Qaeda and ISIS are the biggest, I think they're the biggest threat to U.S. national security in the world, myself, because al-Qaeda in particular aspires to acquire weapons of mass destruction and use them on us. And they could someday hit the lucky number and do it. And where, where do they get their ideology from? They uh, have been, their, their constituency has heavily grown out of uh, Saudi-funded uh, radical Sunni propaganda that's propagated through roughly 1,000 madrasas that the Saudis fund throughout the Middle East. And um, the Saudis are the, the, the site of the most radical view, or the radical, shall we say, variant of Sunni Islam in the world. It's sort of tragically unfortunate that like the, the, the most shall we say, extreme Sunni place on the planet also happens to have a whole lot of oil. They're followers of a particular variant of Islam, which, by the way, is not representative, and a lot of Muslims will tell you it's not even Islam, it's so unrecognizable, called uh, Wahhabism, mm. which is, it follows a, a, a scholar from the 18th century named Abdul al-Wahhab, and he was basically a xenophobe, pretty much hated everybody, and found an excuse for that in the Quran by cherry-picking it. And uh, so, hmm, uh, you know, it's no coincidence that... Uh, was it uh, 18 to 19 or all 19 or what percentage of the attackers in 9-11 were Saudis? Why do we stick with them? Why do we, you know, why were the this Bush family so tight with them? Why is the, the Trump administration well, so tight with them? They're we, really good at lobbying Washington. They really know how to go. Because of the money. Yeah, well, just clever lobbying. I mean, they, they have a big sort of schmooze theory of international politics. And they used to send uh, Prince, what's his name? I can't remember. But he ingratiated himself personally with so many folks in Washington. Isel? Uh, no. Um, it was just a shot in the dark. It's the only uh, one I could think of. I'm forgetting his name. But That's all right. The, the, the Bushes, can you believe it, uh, or the, I don't know who it was, who brought him in to actually brief Bush on how world politics worked when he was um, running for office in, in uh, 1999-2000. Like, we, we allowed this foreigner who, as I said, basically comes from a country that's an enemy of the U.S. to, to inform our, our national elite on how Wouldn't we be work. better off siding with Iran? They're much more yes. naturally friendly yes. to us. You know, I got excited about talking uh, talking about Iran versus the Saudis. I'm going to go back to World War II, and then we can branch out again. We'll get this out of the way. The events that led to the start, some say, sprang from the treaty of that ended World War One, and there are a number of things about it that were problematic. And one, uh, you can go through them, and you you say that you don't really buy into it as much as some other folks. But there are things like the the what's the corridor the Danzig corridor yeah that, that kept 
East Germany or Prussia, I guess, separated from regular Germany. Right. Can you talk about that? East Prussia, yeah. East Prussia, right. Well, at the end of World War One, the Germans, the Allies, took away about 11% of German territory, or the territory that, you know, was under German control at that time. Uh, and there was sort of a rationale for it, which is in Eastern Europe, the Poles and German people are all mixed up. So, like, where's the really right and proper German border in Eastern Europe. It wasn't really all that crystal clear. And the Germans had been winning all the wars lately back in the 1870s, so they kind of took it all. They were, and a lot of Poles living under their rule. And there were these Polish-majority areas, including the Danzig, the corridor, the so-called Danzig corridor, which was this uh, strip of, of what was Germany in 1914 that was Polish-majority. Silesia also was a Polish-majority area. And the Allies said, hey, you know, uh, oh, they actually did a... Um, uh, plebiscite about Silesia, and the people voted to leave Germany and, and join Poland for sort of national reasons. But the Germans never forgot it, never forgave it, and uh, wanted it back. And that was one of Hitler's rallying cries: was um, you know we you know must recover our lost lands. We got to get Silesia and uh, the uh, the Polish quarter back. Um, and so you know one argument is that Versailles was too harsh because you know it took these lands away from Germany. I'm I'm kind of you know not a believer in that argument. Germany, um, uh, let's just say fact one about the situation. Who caused World War I? Germany, okay? Like, they were just a little bad. Uh, they, 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 you know, you start wars, maybe you pay a price. It wasn't an unreasonable thing for the Allies to say, we're not going to be, you know, canning you with kid gloves at the end of the war. If the Polish people want to have a referendum and, and, and um, leave your country, maybe they have a right to do it. Then there were these other aspects that people say were unfair about Versailles. The... Uh, uh, perhaps most emotional one was the uh, so-called War Guilt Clause, which uh, 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 alleged that Germany had responsibility for World War One, and the Germans were very angry about it. And, and um, but they did. I mean, how can they be angry? Well, that's uh, my point. Is I think they they were the prime causes causers of World War One. And uh, to me, uh, you want to tie Versailles and the aftermath to the outbreak of World War Two. The big story isn't that Versailles was unfair to the Germans. It's that the German government launched a propaganda effort to convince the German people that they were innocent of World War I and that the Allies had done something terrible in blaming them for it. Uh, there's really two parts to the story. The first is, at the end of World War I, the Allies made a huge blunder. They did not occupy Germany. Okay, You've got to distinguish the two world wars. Very different. End of World War II, the Allies march into Germany, take the whole place over, grab hold of the schools, the history, the universities, the, the press, the economy. They completely remake the place. World War I, they didn't do any of that. They didn't even occupy Germany. They, and the, the reason they didn't, you know, on its surface, kind of obvious or simple, which is the Germans gave up before their armies were pushed back onto their territory. So in the Western Front, people have to remember, the war was over when the German army was still in France. And then the Allies made the decision, well, we won't, we won't demand entry into Germany. We'll just uh, trust the Germans to behave themselves and, and all that. And they didn't and keep result, an eye on them either. Well, that's the big mistake that they did, made was they didn't grab hold of the German, uh, shall we say, national information system, call it, the schools, the media, the universities, and didn't make changes in what those institutions were doing. And that was a huge blunder because World War I in many ways was a war of fake news. It was the great fake news war. Before the war, these institutions have been poisoning the German people's brain with myth after myth after myth. There's a whole bunch of sort of illusions that the German people believed, that, uh, that um, uh, they've been swilling hyper-nationalism about how they were the greatest people on earth and had been oppressed for many years and treated wrongly by everyone and had you know, rights to, to compensation. 
they, they believed uh, that empires were great things to have and that they should go get one because it would make them secure. They believed that they would be insecure without one. Uh, the, the whole pile of, of, of nonsense that they believed. And the Allies didn't take control of those, those institutions after the war. And then uh, the German government sort of put this problem on steroids by creating this, this – it was an organization within the German foreign ministry. It was called the Auschwitz-Ortigesamt. Um, no, sorry, the uh, Kriegsschulreferat, the Kriegsschulreferat, the War Guild Office in the Auschwitz-Ortigesamt. And it's, it was secret. By the way, people don't believe in conspiracies. This was a conspiracy, and it was secret, not known for decades. And its mission was to poison the brains of the German people about uh, who caused World War I, uh, were the Allies right to blame the Germans, uh, was it fair to ask reparations, uh, who did start the war? The Auschwitz, uh, the sorry, the Kriegsschulreferat blamed the Russians and the British, which was unfair and un untrue. But my point is, how did Hitler rise to power? Um, it wasn't just that he was a great speech maker who could rile people up. He surfed to power on the rage and anger that these lies about the origins of World War One uh, created in the German people. If if you believed the lies that the Germans were told about World War One and the way the Allies had treated. Germany, you would have been real angry too. It right. was, it was Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. An enraging narrative. And um, the, the big switch. With Wilson, Wilson made a huge strategic error after the war. He failed to identify the crux of the problem, which was bad ideas in Germany. He thought everything else had caused World War I. And he, but he got diverted from dealing with the core of the problem. You know, this kind of talk about propaganda makes me realize that most of the most of time, most of the world, the truth is not really a thing. Only for a couple of hundred years in the United States did it seem to be a thing. Uh, and now it's no longer. Now we're like everywhere else. We're, whoever controls the media controls the people. And with, the, uh, with a leader like a President Trump or any president who is able to control the media, he's able to tell everyone that four and four is seven. And if you say it over and over enough, it's the case. It's what happened in Germany. It happens in it happened in Soviet Union, and it's happening here too. And it's it's the price of the death of truth, right? I mean, we are now just like the rest of the world has been for most of time. And that that specialness that we had, where truth mattered, is over, and the consequences are severe. You're raising, you know, obviously a cosmic question, but I think it's very important. I think there's now, you'll hear folks once in a while suggest that we're seeing the end of the Enlightenment, that the, shall we say, whole worldwide or Western world information system is getting a disease or is breaking down in ways that are making it uh, harder and harder and perhaps impossible for truth to prevail or to be the main guide to public discourse and to policy. And if we can't remain anchored in the truth, you know, we're doomed. We're, we're bad, terrible Doomed fast and hard. Doomed fast and hard. And, and basically the way I'd sum it up is, you know, for the first few two, three hundred thousand years of human existence, 
we, we had a pretty rough time of it, and life was tough, and, and one reason was that um, reason didn't prevail, and truth was pretty hard to come by. Then they, they invented this thing, the Enlightenment, in the late 1500s, which was the whole idea that you should operate society, or you should divine what you believed from evidence and reason. Evidence and reason. And, and, and uh, that's the way we've operated you know, through the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries and made all the headway and all the medicine and all the engineering and all the fabulous things. And now we have allowed changes in our information system that look like they're going to roll all that backwards. Big and the, qu qu sorry, big question I have short time is to what blame, to what, to what degree are the people themselves culpable? They allow it to happen, correct? Yes. They, they know what's up and they, they allow it to happen. So that's a problem, too. Well, let's just say, in the end, they are deciding to consume news sources that aren't reliable. And so, hey, naughty on you folks. You, ought to, you have a citizen's responsibility to, to verify the credibility and, and honesty of the sources you decide to take your truth from. Okay. You know, we started talking about World War II and how it came to be. You got me, you know, you're, you're, you're wandering off there. No, it's all related because it's, it's, it's best if we can draw lessons from where things go wrong, and, and we see that World War II happened in large part because of an ability by the powers that be to feed propaganda to masses that wanted to consume propaganda. And that happened. that's happened all over the place, and Americans have been sort of protected from that, I think, but no longer. We now are, the are doing exactly what happened in the run-up to World War II, what happens when in, when other countries go bad. So we later on put a pin in that. I'll call that pin uh, social media and how it can cause a war, and we're talking about causes of war. We're going to get through World War II, and then we'll go back to that. Anything else that, that was a factor? By the way, we hear about Weimar, Weimar Germany all the time. Tell me about Weimar Germany. Well, that was the system, uh, political system created in Germany after World War One, after the monarchy was thrown out and the Kaiser was sent into exile, and uh, it was a democracy. They had elections, um, but it was almost sort of a democracy without Democrats um, uh, because uh, there was uh, a lot of agitating in the Weimar Republic for a return to some kind of more authoritarian system, uh, which uh, some of the, the, the uh, business elites favored, uh, and the army favored, and so um, Weimar was always, uh, uh, you know, working against a tide of opposition uh, to democracy. And it also, the worst thing, though, as I said earlier, is that it was working against this undercurrent of uh, uh, nationalist propaganda that was creating this public rage about Versailles and about the existing order. Uh, and it finally fell apart in 32 when Hitler was elected. He basically um, won the election in 32. Uh, he didn't win a majority, but it, his party won the plurality, and he wound up being appointed chancellor. Sort of a disturbing story because people should remember, he, he didn't march into power uh, with guns. He, he was elected. Anything about Hitler's childhood, early early life that made him who he was? Yes. The, the scholars don't know that much about his early childhood, but insofar as we know about it, um, he, he does seem to have been a, a victim of severe abuse and that his father was very abusive, and he may be a case of uh, one of these tragic cases where an abuser, an abused kid becomes an abuser, which I, I, I hate to talk about that because I don't like to 
uh, you know, stigmatize uh, the folks out there who struggle with with abuse in their childhood. But um, he was, it's clear, I mean, he was a guy with severe personality disorder. He was a sadist. He loved violence. He loved to hurt people. He enjoyed it. It was enjoyable to him. Uh, he was a narcissist. You know, he wouldn't take challenge. He was just, you know, a, a deeply troubled person. Did he have a deep personal animus for the Jews, or was that simply politically expedient to do what he did? I think he had a deep personal animus for the Jews. Otherwise, um, he wouldn't have because it, and we discussed this earlier, it really, the extermination of the Jews cut his war-making capability in like half or something significant like that and really uh, diminished his, ca his capability to wage war. For sure. If he had embraced the Jewish community uh, instead of uh, demonizing and then uh, attempting to kill it, uh, uh, he would have done way better because the German scientific community was brilliant and had a great deal to add. And um, German economic, uh, uh, you know, the engineering community, so on, uh, all would have been a terrific war asset for Germany, as they were in World War I. Um, so it was a huge strategic blunder for him. He also, by the way, his um, decision to go uh, on a rampage to murder the Slavs was a second huge blunder. If he just could have controlled his impulse to kill the Slavic people that he overran in uh, 41 in Ukraine and Russia when his armies moved east, they would have rebelled against Stalin, and the Soviet Union would have fall ap fallen apart. But he couldn't stop himself from ordering the mass killing of both the Jews and the, and the especially communist Slav, you know, the cadres, but Slavs in general. He was a big Slav killer, and it, it cost him the war. Slav, Slavs are always considered to be substandard. Doesn't the word Slav come uh, related to slave? And they right. were always considered slaves. Well— Does it mean South Yugoslavia? What does that mean, southern slave? Southern well— the the Western word, Sla I mean, the American, the English word Slav is, uh, 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 slave is from the word Slav, but that simply represents the fact that the West Europeans used to raid the Slavic areas in the East for slaves. Before the 1400s, slavery in Europe was very much not directed at Africa. It was directed at East Europeans, and it was white. In other words, wh white people were enslaving white people. Then the, the invention of shipping finally got them all eager to uh, grab people out of Africa, and that's when... Um, uh, the you know whole slave trade aimed itself then at Africa in the mid-1400s, Henry the Navigator. In fact, the whole idea of black people as an intellectual category was created then as, a, as an excuse for slavery. Uh, people in the West never thought of it. There was such a thing as black people until then. They, instead, they spoke of each African nation as an independent nation mm -hmm. with a name and a culture and a religion and a, and a, and a, and a, you know, and a, and a language. That's interesting. To, who noticed that? In the writings, you would only, you would only hear of them referenced by nation, and later on you'd see in the writings Correct. referenced as darker-skinned peoples. Then there was this propaganda due to work for Henry the Navigator, and Henry said, you know, I'm only trafficking in, in these folks from Africa. Find an excuse for it. Really? Yeah, yeah. Find me an, a, a reason why this that is That was okay. a conscious thing? Yeah, yeah. He, he said, I need— Is that written down somewhere? There's a historian at University of North Carolina who's written a book, and it, it, he has it in there. I uh, can't remember his name. But it's a That's a pretty key thing if, he's, if it's true. It's kind of a recent— well, it just shows you that, um, you know, race is, is, is an invented thing. And uh, uh, elites like to use it or not use it, depending on whether it, it, it's a useful tool for them to get what they want. Uh, back in the Roman days, okay, were the Romans racist? No, they weren't. They did not organize the world from, hey, white people good, dark people bad. So they just, who was a slave was decided by, you lost, you, you, lost you, the last were, you were conquered. We grabbed you. Yeah, exactly. We don't care about but, color. But think about why it wasn't useful for the Romans. 
because their skin tone was middle toned. So for them to say that some extreme skin tone was the right one didn't justify their power. In fact, the whitest people in the neighborhood then were who? The Germans, okay, who were their enemies to the north. And then further north, you had the Scan Scandinavians. So in other words, this is a taffy idea. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that you'll find elites around the world, they, 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 they bring it to bear when it's useful. Mark, Marco Polo, when he went traveling in the 1200s uh, to, to China, he, in his notes, he never noted um, race. Uh, he talked about what people ate and who they worshipped, but race was not interesting to him. Are you an expert on Marco Polo for another day? No. Do you know any <laughs> experts on Marco Polo? I, mean, I could find one for you. Because sure. I think, yeah. I watched this program where these two kids, they followed as best they could in the footsteps of Marco Polo, and it was pretty interesting. Oh, really? What a, quite a trip. So, Hitler's grand goal and the grand plan to achieve that goal. Hitler didn't really want world domination. That wasn't his. His thing. Well, it was he, regional domination. He was dreaming wasn't it? of it as a as a later project for the next generation. He had it in his mind. But yeah, he wanted a huge empire in Europe. He dreamed of a complete conquest of of especially Eastern Europe. His focus was to create a big empire in what is today Poland, Russia, Ukraine, the entire East European area. That was his goal. He felt he also had to conquer Western Europe also because he feared that if he left France. Uh, uh, alive and sovereign, it would eventually stab him in the back. So we felt he had to conquer them too. Uh, and his reasoning for all this was uh, essentially national security. He basically said, his argument to his generals anyway was, uh, Germany need Germany is insecure because it's surrounded by these wolves that these, you know, German fake news guys had been telling everyone about. And we have to be able to defend ourselves against all of them. And that requires that we have an autarkic economy, an economy that can operate without imports, doesn't need to trade with anyone. And right now we depend on our neighbors for food, and we got to end that. And so we got to conquer the wet breadbasket in the east. So we had this idea of a huge empire in the east he was going to take, and um, he was going to be very rough about it. He was going to uh, not only take an empire, he was then going to either expel or massacre or kill people who lived there. It, it, people believe that he intended to eventually annihilate the entire Polish people. Um, he did, of course, kill all the Polish Jewish community, three million people. And he killed around 3 million Polish Christians. But he intended to annihilate the rest when he got around to it. And so what was the grand strategy to accomplish this? So, you know, on day one, what was in his head as far as his game plan? Well, it was a strike uh, while uh, the getting is good. He believed there was that Germany had a window of opportunity in 1938-39. That Germany had sort of sneaked up on the world and had rearmed from 1935 to 38 while the other powers were sleeping, if you will. Which is kind of true. Which is true, exactly. In other words, there was about a two-year period there where he was breaking out of the Versailles Treaty and rebuilding the Army and the Air Force, and the other powers uh, didn't have clear evidence of it and didn't respond for a couple of years. So it was true that, um, that Germany had this. He thought there was like a, a five-year period when Germany would be fully mobilized and, and the enemies wouldn't be. And so his view was, hey, we can just take them down, take them down. Uh, and... Uh, um, uh, his, uh, uh, he, he eventually attacked the West uh, uh, instead of the East first um, because he felt that, um, that he had to go get those countries before they mobilized. They really hadn't mobilized. He thought the Soviets were more mobilized. But his plan was in the end to, to basically wage a huge war in, uh, in the East. Think he would have done better if he had gone East first? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean... He underestimated the, the Russians. Uh, hugely, yes. Uh, it's good, you know, to me, 
trying to conquer Russia, just a bad project. I mean, he should have just not, he should have just chilled out, okay? This this guy needed to take some, some uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a, of a sedative. Xanax? Thing. Yeah, something, something like that, you know, chilled out. Um, because um, uh, the Soviet Union was, in fact, a very powerful country. And uh, we look back on the Soviets as kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, inefficient people who couldn't produce anything, blah, blah. But that wasn't true in the 1930s, 40s. They outproduced Germany on every dimension of war material during World War II. They built more tanks, more planes, had more divisions, more this, more that. Hitler had complete contempt for them at the beginning. And he, and he as you say, did he underestimate them? Before he attacked the Soviet Union, he's quoted somewhere as saying, one kick on the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. Okay, It's like, boom, we can just take those people. And on the other hand, the French and the... English would have been easier? Well, uh, they proved easier because, you know, in fact, well, uh, the yeah. English didn't, but the French did. I yeah. mean, they, the, the Germans did take France down in 40 days. Um, uh, but uh, there was no escaping the fact that if he started the war, both, both the Russians and the French were going to be in it. Okay. Because both the French and the Russians in the end were going to fear that if the other was defeated permanently, they would be next. So... That dynamic was always at work. Hitler really, if, if he was going to have to be in, in it for, uh, for everything or nothing. He, if he, he wasn't, if he wanted to have only a one front war, that wasn't in the cards for him. So uh, there's no way he, you can really win a war on three fronts like that, right? I mean, wasn't that you had the East, West, and Africa? Well, and then the U.S. too. And the U.S. later. Yeah, it's not right. impossible, right? If you, to, if you, to me, I think the best way to look at, it, yeah, it's impossible. In other words, did he have the resources to uh, to win World War II? No. Uh, in the end, your 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 military power is distilled from your economy. And how big was the German industrial economy? Uh, it was big, strong economy. But if you add together the the Soviet, the French, and the British, they've got considerably more. And they're in the end going to be able to out uh, out arm you and uh, uh, beat you. Um, and so it was a you know he was on a fool's errand. Okay. After this, I'll ask you on a scale of one to ten, how much of a genius was Hitler? And if the number is low, then who were the geniuses on the staff? Okay. After this on WBZ. Okay. Jay talking. My my hey hey. Hey, attention! I'm talking for a reason here. All night long with Bradley J. Bradley J, WBZ News Radio 10:30. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. A voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies all night long. 
Jay talking, Bradley Jay. You're up next, it won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta call me while the hour is gone. News Radio 1030. We gotta call for the Jay talking show. We gotta lie what you say. Bradley Jay. WBZ. And we continue with Stephen Van Evra, uh, the MIT Political Science Department professor and s- super smart guy and really good on the radio, too. We were talking about Hitler and how smart he was or wasn't. And I'm curious, how much of a genius was he or, or not on a scale of 1 to 10? And you know, if, if, it's, if it's like a 5, who were the smart people in the, in the group? Well, it's funny, you know, you look at his career. There's a fun book by a guy named Sebastian Hafner, The Meaning of Hitler. Uh, I recommend it to people who want to get deeper into the guy. It's a very, you know, analytic and evaluative book. And he really says, you know, it's, uh, uh, he's got one chapter on Hitler's uh, brilliant successes and one chapter on his blunders. He's a guy who went from a whole string of amazing successes. He had the hot hand, the golden hand, nothing could go wrong, Midas touch, to a series of incredible blunders uh, that ended in ruin, total disaster and utterly stupid. And the, the successes were basically, you know, his whole career, frankly, all the way from the early 20s up until uh, 1941. Uh, when, if he had just known when to stop, and the time to stop was 1939, don't start World War II, he would have been thought of as the greatest statesman in the history of Germany because he peacefully uh, reassembled a, a, a vast German state uh, without a war. He um, pulled off stunt after stunt after stunt. He took back uh, Austria in, in 38 with the Anschluss. Uh, he took the Czech, he took uh, uh, Sudetenland, this, this Czech area that had never been part of Germany. So when he's saying, Versailles is so unjust, I want to undo Versailles. Well, he's not undoing Versailles, he's just taking things that were never German. Uh, then he took the Czech rump in March of 39, the whole rest of Czechoslovakia. So here he is, peacefully, he's taken over these two huge countries, Austria and Czechoslovakia. Uh, and then he takes Memel, this area in the east. He retakes the Rhineland, which had been under Allied occupation, and so he kicks the Allies out of there. So it's one one success after another. It's an amazing. Uh, so run he could of have success. just kicked back and been the man for the rest of his life. Exactly. Yeah. And, the, and lived in that what's that crow's nest kind of place yeah, he yeah, had up in the, the mountains? Crow's nest. Yeah. Was it the crow's nest? Yeah. I, out in the the, the Berchtesgarten. Yeah. Yeah. And he, but no, he had to he had to push he it. Just had to keep going. You, you know, there's that famous Clint Eastwood line. I can't remember where. When he says, a man's got to know his limitations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. And Napoleon had the same thing. Napoleon had the world, you know, totally uh, under control, and he didn't know when to stop. I so bet Hitler, Hitler, same thing. I bet your course is fun. Do you have a lot of give and take or in your I classes? try to, but I, I, I talk too much. But, you Do know, you? I try to restrain. Yeah. People put up their hand and ask you questions? Well, we try to run it as a discussion, and uh, the MIT kids are really brilliant and fun. So, yeah, I try to. How long is each class? Um, one's like 50 minutes, one's an hour and a half. It's just interesting because we've been, we've done an hour, so it's about as long as a class. Yeah. We have a caller. I didn't ask for callers. It goes by. It does. We have Frank in air. We're big in air. Hello, Frank. Say hello to Stephen Van Evra. You're destroying my sleep pattern with these fascinating shows you have. Uh, my mother was, uh, living in Germany during Hitler's rise to power, and, um, she 
spoke about as absolutely spellbinding oratory, but she also told a story that was circulating among the Germans uh, the relative to the rearming and the uh, bypassing of the Treaty of Versailles. There was this fellow who uh, worked in a baby carriage factory, and you've probably heard it, so maybe you can shut me up, but um, his wife was pregnant, so he wanted to have a baby carriage, but he couldn't just walk out with a baby carriage. He had to sneak it out piece by piece. And by the time he got all the pieces again, started assembling it, no matter how he tried assembling it, he he come up with a machine gun. And I've never heard that story, but it fits the general pattern, which is that German, the German, the Nazis worked hard to rearm covertly and to hide well, their hide their rearmament from the prying eyes of the Allies, and they succeeded for about two years. And as they were really in full rearmament mode from '33. You know, they, they really kicked it in full gear in 34, 35, and um, uh, they, they hit it, and the Allies mm-hmm. didn't see it, and were two years late in starting. Uh, well, it was certainly an open secret among the Germans, according to the story, anyway. So, yeah, well, they, I mean, surely a lot of people were involved, and mm-hmm. um, it involved, you know, back in those days, we were talking about mass warfare, you know, huge public mobilization for war, so how do you train a whole army and having people not being aware of it? Uh, I know they trained they, they trained their army units with fake tanks that were basically cardboard, you know, cardboard structures that had little gasoline motors underneath them because they were really saying the thing you guys need to learn is how to operate in a formation and the fact that you don't have a real tank. So what? We'll teach you how to be a tank force without tanks, and they and they did it, uh, and um, uh, they 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 hid their air buildup. And uh, there's a couple good books in the Cornell Press series about uh, how uh, did the Germans rearm without being seen, and, and what did the Allies know and not know. But uh, that th- th- that was a different world when there was much less, if you will, transparency in the military area. This was pre-satellite. Uh, the Allies had uh, no satellites to look down with, and they had no, um, uh, you know, good spy plane stuff, no good photography from the air that would pick up the, you know, ground activities. So. Uh, I, I don't think that the, the Allies weren't fools. They just, uh, they just didn't have good visibility. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. We're going to take a break. And happily, our guest has agreed to a couple extra innings, so I, I won't have to miss out on anything. And next we'll talk about uh, the Jews and fake news. It's WBZ Boston's News Radio. Thinking of buying or selling a home? Think Louise Condon Realty in Needham or Sweeney and O'Connell Real Estate in Arlington. For independent Realty Guild offices across the Commonwealth, check RealtyGuild.com because all real estate is local. If you miss tax-free weekend, Moynihan Lumber is offering a six and a quarter percent discount, equivalent of the mass sales tax on all Omega cabinets and Schrock trademark and entry series. Visit Moynihan Lumber today. Offer expires September 25th and applies to Omega and Schrock cabinetry only. WBZ Boston, WXKS FM HD2 Medford, and iHeart. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.